0: So looking at this passage, uh, this like last week and this week, um, it was, it's been kind of interesting this summer because we've had so many people coming in as uh, missionaries that are coming in to update us and people coming to speak and everything. Um, I, I kind of feel like a stranger in my pulpit a little bit. But at the same time, that gives you a lot of time to think on uh, a lot of time to think on a passage, and I got a lot of chance, I got a chance to spend a lot more time with this passage than I usually do, and, and I really enjoyed that. I really relished um, being able to just kind of marinate um, in the book of Thessalonians for a couple of weeks. It was nice. Um, and out, out of it, an idea kind of came or, or came up, and it reminded me of my summer living in the Dominican Republic. Um, I worked with a missionary group there, and our job was to work with the long-term missionaries that were situated there for years and years, and we were bringing in groups of high school students and college students, and and our job was to kind of both create more opportunities for long-term missionaries because we were blowing their stereotypes up of what the typical American teenager looked like, but then we were also trying to blow up the worldview of the typical American teenager at the same time by actually making them experience things like... Here's what a hospital looks like in the third world. That person with the infectious skin disease, quarantine for them is pushing the bed to the far end of the room because that's the best we can do. Oh, we have oh we have two premature babies. Well, we only got one incubator, so we're going to stuff them both in the same one. You know, like like we're going to do what we're going to do because this is what you have. And and there were just things like that that were constantly you know and it blew my mind at first coming and living there for at least the first you know 2 3 weeks i was like where am i what am i doing but slowly i kind of got accustomed to life there and then i had an issue where i had to go and and i had a problem with you know just some passport visa e stuff that needed to get sorted out while I was down there. And so I took a bus trip from where we were down to the capital, San Domingo, and I went to the embassy. And that was a weird experience. Because, it, I, and I don't know, how many of you have ever had to go to an embassy like in a foreign country before? Have you ever had to do that? Okay, I so yeah, a few people have. All right, so I come in, and I've got, you know, my passport and... And I, I understand it's probably even more strict now, but I mean, this was this was pre nine eleven. This was in a, a different world than the one that we live in now, in in some ways. So I come and I have my passport, and I'm you know ready, and I get stopped by armed guards at the gate, and they look at my passport, and they're like, okay, so you're a citizen. So I'm you're gonna ask, I'm gonna ask you like twenty questions now on the fly to gauge your response, so that I know that you are actually a citizen. And I'm like, hey, okay, you know, this is a little, I just thought I was going to show this and walk in. But no, there's, I mean, there's there's measure after measure after measure. And then I walk in, and all of a sudden, it's like I'm in Little America again. Which was very strange for me, because I'm, I've, I've kind of gone native, right? Like, I'm in, like, this stained t-shirt and, like, shorts and flip-flops. And I've been, like, you know, out working in the rural Dominican, you know. I do not look like... I do not look like the people that I'm around anymore and I'm kind of going oh right okay and it was interesting because the realization of coming that that actually because there's an embassy there I actually am in the United States at that point just like if I went to the Dominican embassy in Chicago I would actually be in the Dominican Republic that's kind of the whole point of an embassy is it's it's it is a, it is a space of another country sitting in the middle of a sovereign territory that you're in, but you're there, but you're not there, which was kind of strange, right? And I never saw the ambassador because, I mean, I, it, well, one, it wasn't that big of a question. Okay, it was not that big of a deal. <laughs> I was not having that kind of a problem. Um, but I saw his office. I took a small tour while I was there. Um, and in essence, the guy that was talking to me about it and just explaining how the embassy worked and everything his role as ambassador is to be the embodiment of U.S. policy and culture in whatever country he is in. In essence, he wields the authority of the President of the United States, makes foreign relationship decisions based on the investment of that authority. And it's kind of the same for anyone in an ambassador or emissary position. You, you personify the sovereignty and the influence that you represent. In essence, you are that kingdom or that country or that power in the flesh where you are and and this is an old idea this is not a new idea this idea existed far 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 back into the roman and the greek empires and even before that and now i think we kind of tend to think of ambassadors mostly as like formal political title now like you greased a few palms and you became the ambassador of some really tropical place. You know, I, I think that's what we think of ambassadorship as now, but it carried a lot of weight in the time of Jesus to be an ambassador. And there, there are a couple of words in the Greek language that really kind of convey the idea of what that was to be an ambassador. Uh, the first is, is, is presbyter, which we're not very familiar with unless we think of like the Presbyterian church, okay? Like, oh, presbyter, I get that now. Okay, but if you go all the way back, presbyter carries with it the idea of carrying the honor of the kingdom, okay? Like an elder or, or a dignitary would. Somebody that is invested with honor. And so as the elder of your tribe, as the elder of your country, as the elder of your city or your region, you carry the honor of the city with you. Now, I don't know what that says about the Presbyterian Church, necessarily. I'm just, you know, I'm going back to, like, many, many thousands of years ago here. But we're not so familiar with that one. But this one, there's another one that we're a little bit more familiar with. Apostle. And the idea of an apostle is less about carrying the honor of the kingdom, although you you have that, it's more about embodying the power, embodying the authority of the kingdom. And in the context of the first century that the early church inhabits, that term apostle literally carries the idea of being one sent as though you were Caesar himself. Those who came bearing the title of apostle were acting as though they were Caesar, even as the embodiment of the might of the entire empire in the flesh. That is not a small word. That is not a small title. That is not a small idea. And, and Paul takes this idea, but it's not just Paul. I mean, it's, it's been there with the 12 as well but he applies it as relevant to his role as an ambassador of Christ. But at the same time, it's not just for him. And and this is one of these things I really, as I was thinking about this, and as I was, again, getting to sit and marinate with this passage for a little while, one of the things that I realized is that I don't look at Paul right. And here's what I mean by this, okay? Okay. Sometimes I, and maybe you, we think of Paul like one of those traveling heroes from the old westerns, okay? Some combination of like the Lone Ranger and a circuit preacher. I just, no, think about it, okay? He, he goes to town, and he preaches the gospel, and there's a theological gunfight, and he wins, and then he leaves. And he goes to the next town. and And maybe he's got Maybe he's got, like, Timothy, or he's got Barnabas, or he's got Silas, and they're like Tonto, but really, he's the guy. That is not the way that this letter is written. And this is, this is Paul's very first letter, and so I think, I think, actually, this carries a lot of weight if you think about this, okay? This letter is not the letter of Paul. This letter is the letter of Paul and Silas and Timothy. There is no I language in the entire letter. It is all us and we. All the first person pronouns are plural. We are men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We worked hard night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we proclaimed the gospel among you. And I think it's significant that we hear this in the letter to the Thessalonians. We were apostles among you. We want to limit that word, apostle. And we also want to limit its implications. We want to limit that to just 12 guys from Galilee and one latecomer from Tarsus. We want to keep it with them. And it's obvious, though, that Paul himself viewed Silas and Timothy to have that same investment, that same image, that same mission, and that same gifting of apostleship the same way that he did. And in fact, in the letters of Paul, there are 17 other people, men and women. Priscilla, Junia, anybody? All right. All right that share this spiritual gift of being sent with the authority and the power of the kingdom behind them. So if Paul's view of this idea of being an apostle is a bit wider, maybe my view needs to be a bit wider as well. Maybe there's things about, because I think what happens is as soon as Paul starts tr- talking about what it was like when he was an apostle or when they were an apostles among the people, we kind of turn that off and go, oh, that's nice. Paul's just reminding them of, of a story or, or whatever. Or We don't see a whole lot of inroads into our life. And I think by widening this understanding of who can be an apostle, we also widen our understanding of how this message actually applies to our lives, how this letter actually applies to us. And at first glance, there's something kind of sketchy about this passage, if you think about it, Okay. Because, again, if, if, if this morning for my sermon, I got up and I started, our message was saying, I just want you to know that I never did anything wrong during my time with you. I never had any impure motives. I never tried to trick you. I did not flatter you. I did not mask any secret greed in my heart. God is my witness. You guys would already be like, when's he leaving? What are the elders doing? What happened? When is the news story coming out? Okay, that, because, because we're skeptic. We'd immediately be looking for the scandal, right? And in some ways, I think Paul really is kind of providing a defense for the gospel that he and Silas and Timothy have proclaimed and embodied as apostles in Thessalonica, as well as as defending their virtue and defending their integrity as apostles of Jesus Christ, We've talked about this in the last few weeks already this trio of missionaries they come into Thessalonica after being treated quite poorly in Philippi and they leave Thessalonica with even more poor treatment that spills over from them into the lives of the infant Christians who are there there's riots and people go on trial and they get released on bail which is not near as simple of a deal as as it is now okay there's no like there's no like I don't know Thessalonica's midnight bail bonds. It's, it doesn't work like that. It's a big deal. And, and they're, it's not like those adversaries that came against them stopped harassing the church members after their leaders left. It's not like they just went away. They're still there. They're still saying all these things. They're still doing these things. Their arguments, their accusations, and probably even their persecution is still hanging in the air over this young church. And it's raising things that need an answer. Okay? And so Paul is kind of providing a defense here. And you go through and you look at some of these things and and you realize he's saying, like, no, just... When you're experiencing this persecution of ridicule or this persecution of people going, oh, you associated with them. Like, you need to realize that that's not the truth. You know the truth. You were witnesses to the truth of the way that we conducted ourselves among you. So he is providing a defense, but at the same time, like, we need to realize that the charges that Paul is noting here in 1 Thessalonians 2, they're not specific to his situation in Thessalonica. Actually, the, the traveling philosopher was a common and often questionable character in the Greco-Roman world. The traveling teacher. He was kind of a cross between our more modern images of like a traveling busker or an entertainer, a motivational speaker, and possibly even like a snake oil salesman. It's kind of all those things wrapped up into one. And you never knew what you were going to get. Were you getting somebody who was just there to entertain you? With philosophy, heady ideas, like the guys in Athens who like to stand around and talk about stuff all day? You know, TED Talks. Oh, that was nice. Are you getting somebody who can tr- who, who's, who's like a motivational speaker who's like really, really, you, who really actually has something of value to say? Or are they just trying to pump you up? Or worse, are you getting somebody who is just using their talent at speaking or their talent at thinking up an idea in order to get a free ride out of your community while they're in town? Right? What is it? Who are you actually dealing with? And so there was some skepticism. You know, because somebody, if you could find even a semi-original idea that was somewhat sensational and you had an audience to hear, you could make yourself someone of importance and make a living off of people's donation and hospitality because of your great wisdom and authority. And as time goes by, we see a lot of these false teachers are starting to come into play in the early church that are going to try and swindle people or con people into hawking some corrupted or rebranded gospel in order to take advantage of people. Hey, that doesn't sound so much different than what I see on TV sometimes. Things don't change, do they? And, and that's why Paul, in some of his other letters, would be like so defensive and forthright about being an apostle approved by God, so passionate against his detractors, so forceful in his arguments in letters like the ones that he writes to Corinth and Galatia. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't seem to be that defensive here. By comparison, he's not at all. He just notes some of the accusations that are laid out. And then he talks about what being a real apostle looks like. And after a couple of choice words regarding the misguided passion of the accusers who are still harassing the church, and especially harassing the idea that that the Gentiles could receive the gospel as well, he just moves on. And that's because this letter is not a letter of defense. And it's not a letter of correction. At its core, the letter to the Thessalonians is a love letter. And I think we should read it like a love letter. It's pouring out the love that these three apostles have for their spiritual children in Thessalonica, and, and also just sustaining them in the knowledge that the church loves them too. And all of this coming from the mutual love that derives from God's great love for all of them. That's what this letter is really about, is them writing a letter and saying, we love you, and we love the fact that we are loved by you, and we... We love the fact that God has loved all of us so much to invite us to be participants in his great gospel. That's what this letter is. And so even while Paul's providing this defense against accusations about delusion and impure motives and greed and seeking personal prestige and all those kind of things, he's actually doing something else as well, doing something more, doing something better. He is showing the beloved children in Thessalonica, what it looks like to be an ambassador of Jesus and how to appropriately wield the authority and the power that comes with it because they too are ambassadors. They too are image bearers of Jesus and his good news. And so they better know what that looks like And so Paul reminds him and says, you know what this looks like. You remember how we were among you. Now, we've already talked about this idea of an apostle being someone who carried authority and power with them. And if you think about it, in in the Roman world, those are your very important people. Those are your heavy hitters in the city council or the boardroom, okay? Those are the ones where they mention the name and you go, oh, oh him. Oh them. They're coming to town. Oh, oh boy. All right. Everybody get ready because we need to impress. Everybody get ready because we need to put our best foot forward. Everybody get ready because we don't want to upset them because they are the heavy. And and Paul kind of even says, "Look, we're apostles among you. We could have been the heavies. We could have asserted our authority. We could have said, "Hey, we are invested with this gospel." And so you guys that believe, you need to help us out. We could could have had this hierarchy. We're the apostles. We're over. You're the believers. You're the infant church. You're under. We're on top. You're on the bottom. You know, just be glad that you're part of the whole thing. We could have been like that. But that's not what an apostle, in the image of Jesus, the one who poured out all of his authority, the one who poured out all of his power that's not the way that they operate and so what you see is a power and authority that operates completely different from power and authority in the world and that's what's so fantastic about this passage is that you and i get a glimpse of what it looks like to be jesus in our world and to be invested with the power of jesus in our world And instead of swagger and high expectations, a couple of luxuries and advantages at your disposal, Paul and Silas and Timothy act as apostles of the servant king who became slave of all. And they embody lowliness and they embody gentleness even as they're bold in proclaiming the kingdom of heaven to those that they encounter. So let's look a little bit. What does does one who carries the image of Jesus, what does one who carries the authority and the power of Jesus look like? What do they do? How do they act? First off, they are bold in the face of opposition while still being gentle and humble. How amazing is that? Just think about that. That's a whole sermon right there. How how are we bold in the face of opposition while at the same time being humble and gentle? How do we not become wishy-washy about our conviction while at the same time showing a great amount of compassion for the people that we encounter? Okay, that is what Jesus was king of. That's what Jesus is king of. That's what the Holy Spirit empowers you and I to do, is to marry conviction and compassion together in a Christ-like way. You know, usually when things get rough, the charlatan moves on, and even the truth-teller starts to speak a bit softer, but not so with a true apostle of Jesus. Instead, the terrible treatment that these three experience in Philippi increases their passion for the gospel. If someone's seeking to use authority or power that they possess for their own gain, when hardship comes, they adjust to a more comfortable strategy. They adjust to a more comfortable message. I think sometimes we've done that. I think hardship has come and we've adjusted to a more comfortable strategy. We've adjusted to a more comfortable message. Paul says we don't do that. We know the gospel of Christ and we know Christ who is the gospel. We're not going to adjust because we know the king of the universe and we know that we have his power now even though we'll stay steadfast in our conviction though the images that we see is that the same spirit that lives in us it will ridicule the scorn that we experience in proclaiming the world proclaiming Christ to the world around us okay the same way that Jesus did he scorned the shame of the cross. He disarmed the adversaries that were against him because he scorned the shame of the cross. And continued to be bold in his pursuit of humility. In his pursuit of the conviction that God, this was the way that God was saving the world. Even though it looked like foolishness. he didn't hesitate. He was bold. And we should not hesitate. We should be bold. But it is a boldness that does not make demands of the world and it does not make demands of those who believed. Instead, rather than setting themselves up high on a pedestal or setting the gospel like as a, as a top-down thing like an apostle of Caesar would. They showed the gospel for what it was. The gospel is God bowing low. The gospel is God bowing down to lift up. And so they embodied that by doing that themselves. They said, you know, we humbled ourselves as the true king would have in your midst. The images we see, Paul's description show not only humility, but close, but, but humility because of close family affection. I really love what, what Daniel did last week, where he kind of popped a bunch of images into our minds, right? The seesaw, the trumpet. What was the third one? Help me. The what? The telescope, thank you. I was like, I was trying to remember which one. I was like, what is it? Oh no. I had it until I started saying it. I was like, no. There are images all throughout this letter, and here are, some thre- here are three really or actually kind of four really striking images that Paul uses to describe carrying the authority of Jesus and it starts in, in and it's all in family though this is the thing I love is, is, is that being an apostle of Jesus means seeing the world as god 's children, seeing the people that you run into as God's family, whether they know it or not. And so he starts with, in verse 2-7, we were gentle, or we were like infants. Okay? Some, of us, some of us may have gentle in your Bible, but the thing is many of the early translations have the word infant because it's just one letter off in Greek. Okay, And I think infant may even be a better way to describe it. It could have been a clerical error, but it could be something more because instead of coming in like heavies, the apostles come into town the way Jesus did. He came into town small and humble and unassuming, like a baby in a manger. They willingly, like Christ, made themselves nothing to the people that they were preaching to for the sake of the gospel. How often, when we are bringing the truth of the gospel to people, do we try to kind of like sell it as high, sell it as, as big, sell it as something glamorous rather than doing it the way that Jesus did it? Small, unassuming baby in a manger that changes the world. I see so often like like power and 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 you know heavy proclamation trying to push the gospel. And yet it is this humble, gentle, consistent, bold bold but bold like a baby in a manger. Radically different, unexpected, powerful that way that is the gospel that starts to change people's lives when we embody that and so they come in and they and they make themselves nothing like that but then you get this other image and it's a double image okay the first is is the nursing mother okay but but it's kind of been condensed but we need to split it up cuz it's not just a mom caring for her own children it's the idea of someone who is a wet nurse Caring for her own children. I know that's kind of a weird idea, and you guys are like, ah, what does this have to do with anything? Let me explain. Okay? The wet nurse was a, was a frequently employed figure in God's world, not just for rich people, like for everybody. Okay? Um, didn't matter, like slave, free, rich, poor, doesn't matter but it was considered a very virtuous position. We actually have numerous inscriptions in history where these like powerful Romans have honored not just their family, but the women who nursed them as children, who were not their family but were like family because they nursed them as children, almost like a third parental figure, a beloved and devoted person in their lives. But then the image goes even further because this isn't someone who's doing this because... It's they're, they're nursing their charge, the person that it's their duty to take care of. She's nursing her own children. And so, and, and Paul kind of says, you know, it's clear, being an apostle bearing God's gifts of the gospel to you, church, nurturing you in the way of discipleship is a duty that we have put on us by God. But we don't do this out of duty. We do it out of deep, family-based love for you because God is the father of us all. And that makes you like our kids. I think about the way that we bring the gospel to people. Do we bring it in a way that is feeding and nurturing them? And giving them what they need. And do we do it because they're projects? Do we do it because it's our duty to do so? I mean, yes, we have been given the power of the gospel. And so we have a a proclamation to make. But do we do that simply for that reason? Or do we do it for people because they're people? Because they're loved by God? Because they're our family? They don't know it yet but they're our family. Why do, we, why do we invest the gospel in people? Do we do it because they're projects, or do we do it because they're beloved by us, or beloved to us? I think that's sometimes why our evangelism falls flat. Because we treat people like projects or process and to bear the image of Christ as an apostle to other people is to embody a deep love that Jesus has for us as his brothers and sisters, his family, right? I also think it's important to notice how risky it is for Paul to do that. I mean, it, I mean, one, it's kind of interesting that he would compare himself to like this like, feminine thing. He kind of like tosses his gender aside. And, we're, and in our world, we're kind of like, oh yeah, tossing gender aside. We're seeing that happen all the time. Here, that is a really risky move. He's in a patriarchal society. Okay? He's in an over-under society. You have to see what he just did there. There's a lot of vulnerability there and a lot of challenge to anybody who would follow in his steps there is that you, as an image bearer of God's power and authority, it's actually about you handing your authority over. Handing the authority over to the father of all the church. I'm not going to call myself the father. I'm going to hand the authority over to the father of all the church. I'm going to hand it over to God. I'm not going to make myself much. I'm going to make God much, and I'm going to make myself nothing. And these three, they willingly strip themselves of position or priority for the sake of building up these strong family bonds in the church. And that's I think, is another big image for us today of what it looks like to bear God's image. How much of our interaction with other believers or with the church involves us getting our needs met? Versus how much of it involves us willingly stripping ourselves of power or position or authority or getting my needs met or any of those kind of things in order to be virtuous to someone else or to empower their well-being. Because Paul says that's that's what we did. We stripped ourselves of all of those things and laid them aside and made ourselves vulnerable to you for your well-being. That's what it means to bear the image of Christ in the church. How much of our experience looks like that? And then... And then he says, And then we taught you as a father teaches children. Again, this marriage of compassion and conviction. This marriage of, of of kingdom virtues. But also living humbly and gently. And I think this is a peculiar and a difficult stance for them to take, especially with the Gentiles. But it seems to me it was, it was those who didn't understand had never seen this idea that they could be a part of God's family, that they could be God's children. Those are the ones who accept this authentic, holy lifestyle, even more than the ones who had said, oh, yeah, we're God's children their whole life. It was, it was difficult for those who had said, yeah, we're God's children, but it doesn't look like that to accept it. And it was those who had never thought of themselves as worthy of being God's children that when the love of the Father came embodied in the teaching, they were the ones that snapped it up and said, this is amazing, I want this in my life. I think it's so important in the way that we teach people. because You're all teachers, you know this, right? I hope you know it. I hope you believe that. Every single one of you is teaching a gospel message. How are you teaching it? How are you embodying it? How are how are you presenting it? I think it's so important that that we teach with conviction. That we that we're willing to stick to our guns in those hard conversations and and say the things that, that people need to hear, but we say them with the love as though they were family, like close family, people that we elevate and adore and want to take care of. It's so hard sometimes, I mean, even in, in family gatherings, I know, I like, like any family, my family has, you know, those things that are hard to talk about. But we talk about them because we want to grow together stronger as family, And, and how much of our teaching in the gospel with one another and how much of our teaching in the gospel out with those who do not know the gospel is out of a desire to draw them into closer relationship with God to make them more family, to make our family stronger. That's, that's the example that Paul uses here. That's the example of being an apostle. I think all of, this, all of these ideas... And what I really want to wrap up with you guys on is just this. What is our intended purpose as human beings? What's the end goal of the gospel? And that may seem like kind of an odd question, but I think it has everything to do with understanding this passage and the idea of being an apostle. Because sometimes I think we, we, we leave the gospel halfway to the end. We get to forgiveness of sin, we get to redemption of humanity, we get to being reconciled to God, and then we stop. And that's it. And I think that that's an incomplete gospel, if I can be so bold as to say that. A gospel that simply stops at God was upset with my sin and then Jesus came and took care of it and so now I'm forgiven and everything's good. I think that's incomplete and I think sometimes that's why people have so much trouble. Maybe that's why even we in church have so much trouble latching onto that idea and being fulfilled in that idea because I think it's an incomplete idea. It's an incomplete gospel. From Genesis to Revelation, God makes it clear, I believe, and from what I see so many other people saying, the goal of the gospel of Jesus was not just to return us to an unblemished state. It was to return us to our rightful role as being image bearers of God, being his priests, being his ambassadors. Through us, people see the character of the one who saved and redeemed us they see the creation they see creation as being reconciled to god as we participate in his power as we participate in his purpose that's why i think things like the church open house on thursday was so important it wasn't just to bring the kids in and be like hey here's all this stuff about church that you don't know it was to say you are participants in the gospel right now, children. And it really doesn't matter what age or what background or what your story is, church, you need to hear this. The reason that Christ died for you was for you to be a participant in the gospel. That is why your sins are forgiven, that is why you are empowered with the Holy Spirit, is for you to be a participant in His great gospel. And I think it's time for us to reclaim this concept of apostleship back into our lives again. Because like I said, we've either left it in the hands of 13 guys 2,000 years ago, or we've left it in the hands of like radical religious hucksters on TV, and we've gone, okay, well, I don't, I don't want an apostle to look like that. But the New Testament lists being an apostle right there with all the other gifts that we possess in some measure. The ability to give, the ability to lead, the ability to show hospitality, the ability to proclaim God, the ability to show people how to follow him, the ability to sacrifice for someone else. All of those things are listed as gifts that are infused in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Right alongside them is the gift of apostleship, the gift to be able to embody the power and the authority and the character of our King Jesus and to be his representative to the people and the places who do not know him. To be an embassy of the kingdom of heaven in the middle of a foreign country. So that when you step into my house, when you step into my office, when you step into my family, when you you get into my car, wherever it is, you are now in the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. If our homes were embassies because we're ambassadors, if our office, our cubicle, our desk was an embassy, I don't what I don't whatever you have, I don't know, right? If our car was an embassy, because when people got into it, they were stepping into the kingdom of heaven. Which might be exceptionally radical during rush hour, okay? If you're going to Langford. But imagine what that would look like. Imagine how incredible that would be if you could do that. Church, you can do that. You, you, you not only can do that, you're supposed to do that. You're, you're empowered by God and challenged by God to do that. We don't have to look at foreign countries far away or somewhere super seedy or somewhere super dangerous to find that kind of place to be an apostle. Apostle. You've got people all around you who need to know the power of Christ. And you are the ambassador. You are the embassy. And so we carry that with us. We carry it by the example set for us in Christ and the ambassadors that he's given us. So we speak with a humble boldness in the face of ridicule or rejection. We scorn shame and suffering the same way that he did on the cross and we use it to show a worthy life. We deal with people gently, we draw them near, not acting as know-it-alls, not acting as self-righteous, but willingly stripping ourselves of status in order to love people well. Church, my prayer for you is that you will reveal a life modeled after Jesus by the power of his spirit, a life that's shaped by conviction and yet modeled and proclaimed in compassion. Church, my prayer for you today is that you'll embrace the role of being an apostle again. Let's pray as the worship team comes up. Father, this is a big idea, and and maybe it's one that's kind of foreign to us. Lord, I, I think we know that. I think we know that we're supposed to act like you. I think we know that we're we're supposed to be like you. I think we know that we're supposed to tell people about you. But God, this idea that we're supposed to, that we really have the ability to be you. And that these places that we live in and these places that we work in and wherever it is that we go, this idea that we are a mobile temple of you, that we're an embassy of your kingdom, that we're, we're actually being you in the flesh when we call on your name, when we love as you love, when we speak as you spoke, when we teach as you taught, that we're actually being you, Father. That That's a big idea, and I think maybe we're scared of it. I know I'm scared of it, because I there are a lot of times I don't look like you. And I know how much I'm not like you. Yet, Lord, you've promised me, and you've promised us that you have given us everything we need in your spirit. So I pray that the words that have fallen out here today, Lord, the, the, ones, that, the ones that don't matter, that they will just fall away. But Lord, the, the words that are from your spirit, that they will dig deep into our hearts today and they will convict us and they will transform us and they will change us so that we really can be your ambassadors, that we can bring your honor and your power and authority to bear in the world around us the way that you did. Thank you for the opportunity to be participants in your great gospel. Thank you for the opportunity to not just receive your gospel, but to live in it and to spread it and to be a part of watching you make it grow in the lives of others. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.